Turn with me now in the Word of God to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. I'm going to ask you to stand now out of respect for the reading of the Holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and His feet are like burnished bronze. says this, I know your deeds, your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she doesn't want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Those who commit adultery with her in the great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, and I'll kill her children with pestilence, and with all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I'll give to each one of you according to your needs. I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden upon you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I'll give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. I'll give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, it used to be that the watchword of the woke was tolerance. Up until fairly recently, I think, now it's not that. I, I don't know whether it's inclusiveness or equity or privilege or some other word or a whole set of, um, of letters. But I know it used to be tolerance or tolerate. In fact, uh, it became so prominent in culture, I would argue going back at least 25 years now, that toleration and, and this concept of, of everybody really needs to be nice and tolerant towards everything was the constant message that came from the secular world. And in fact, it became something like a bludgeon to use to, to smash people over the head to keep them in line. So that we all learned as a people to be nice and tolerant towards absolutely everything, even if it was the most vile form of, of evil. Because toleration, we are told, was good. It was necessary. So that we could all be a peaceful society where everybody got along. And there was a, a supposed moral concern at the root of it all, which is that you're not to judge others. And there were Bible verses which actually became very handy to the, to the woke secular Pharisee class of people who wanted to reinforce this pragmatism principle upon all of us, which often were taken out of context, where don't be judged lest you be judged. But the thought was, what we really need to do in order to build... Uh, a diverse society was tolerance. That would solve everybody's problems. Well, if you take that principle and you bring it to the Word of God and you put it to the test, one of the things that you find is the Bible isn't tolerant. God is not tolerant. The law of God is not tolerant. And Jesus Christ isn't tolerant. 
In fact, I think we can say, especially in view of our text this morning, not only is Jesus Christ is not tolerant, he's intolerant with a vengeance, and that's literal, as we read in our text this morning. And so, as we come to our text this morning with that idea of tolerance, and we try to encapsulate the message of Jesus Christ to the church at at Thyatira, and even to us this morning, I I think we can see it in, in fairly simple and straightforward terms. Jesus comes to the church in spite of its many commendable qualities, and he says, I have a major problem with you, church at Thyatira, and your problem is this, you're too woke. And you can see that for yourselves in verse 20, as Jesus addresses the church, he says, I have this against you, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who is emblematic and symbolic of the depths of wickedness. And they tolerate it within the church. And so what Jesus Christ does is sound the alarm to the congregation and to the church in general after it, that the church is not to be tolerant. The church must not tolerate and include willfully those who transgress and promote ideas and practices that are contrary to Christ and to Scripture. That's the simple and straightforward charge of our text. Jesus Christ charges the church to not be tolerant of ideas and practices and people who willfully transgress Scripture and teach and hold practices which are contrary to it. We're going to break that main point down this morning into three parts. Praise, condemnation, and promise. Praise, condemnation, and promise. So we begin with praise, as most of these passages in these seven letters do. They begin with something commendable. And so Jesus now comes to the church at Thyatira. By now we know that the angel is the pastor of the church. Jesus is writing a message to the pastor of the church because he knows the pastor of the church will pass it on to his congregation because, well, that's what pastors are supposed to do, was expound the word of Christ to the congregation. And so he addresses it here to the church, which is at Thyatira. And there's just a couple of things that I think are useful to know about Thyatira. And they're bound up with the very culture of the city. And one of the things that we know about the culture of the city, Thyatira, is that it was dominated by trade unions, by guilds, by skilled workers. And one way we know that is from the Bible itself. Because Acts 16.14 describes Lydia who was at the time in the city of Philippi as a seller of purple from Thyatira. If you go back into antiquity and you search the records and you see what is unfolded through the excavations, one of the things that you will find about Thyatira is that it was full of trade unions and very, very skilled workers. Clothers, metal makers, wool workers, dyers, potters, tanners, leather workers, and well, you could name it from A to Z. Alphabet soup, they were the city of Kendu. They were, they were people who took a lunch pail to work and took a shower and they came home afterwards. It wasn't white collar. It was all blue collar. And uh, the thing about it, which is significant for the unfolding of our text this morning, is every trade union had its own god. Every trade hall, every trade union then, in Union Hall, had its own little temple within it where there was a god and devotion was required in order to maintain membership in that union. And so part of the union meeting activities at the the local trade union, at the guild, was uh, participation in the uh, idolatrous acts of that particular god. We'll see why that matters in a moment. So the fact that the city was populated by guilds in itself isn't bad. We love people who work at the union. We love the blue-collar worker, the people who put their hands on something and make things. That's not the problem in of itself. The problem is the association with idolatry and false gods. The other thing that's interesting to know about uh, Thyatira is that it's well known for its association with pagan prophecy. There is a document that comes down from antiquity that starts somewhere, we think, in the second century before Christ and extends maybe a few centuries at least after him. It's called the Sibylline Oracles. 
the Sibylline Oracles. And what it was was a record of prophecies that were given to certain uh, pagan prophets and prophetesses, if you will. And so um, it was well known at the time that there was a, a, a woman who was a prophetess in the city of Thyatira named Sambat in the first century, about the time this was written, who is known to be a prophet, and some of her writings are included within the Sibylline Oracles. And there's a, there's a monument to her, in fact, in this city. And so you could say that the city was fascinated by prophecy. And so I think that pays to keep in mind as you begin to think about why it was this Jezebel lady who styled herself as a prophetess came prominent in the church as they baptized the culture and brought it in to the kingdom. So Thyatira is known for its trade unions, its paganism, its prophecy. Yet in spite of that, Jesus Christ had a church there. And by the way, this church was full of, well, apparently very godly people. As you look at verse 19, I want you to notice that Jesus says something general and then something very specific about the church. And when you think about it, it looks like these these believers were, well, they were really sincere. Look at verse 19. They know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of the lay are greater than at the first. And so I want us to notice, first of all, the very first thing that Jesus Christ says to this church is that you overflow with deeds. I know your works. And we hear this language of works. We are not thinking in terms of self-righteousness acts of obedience to Christ that's contrary to scripture because nowhere does the Bible command us to earn our salvation through self-righteousness in fact it's just the opposite scripture roundly condemns the the very effort or attempt to to seek righteousness before God by ourselves because the scripture says that if God was to judge us by our iniquities not a single one could stand so that's not the point here scripture is very clear that there is a call upon the believer after they come to Jesus Christ that they are to seek to serve Him. And so the Word of God says in Titus chapter 3, tell the people, remind them, they are to be rich in good works. And we know from Ephesians chapter 2 that, that, that the Apostle Paul says that the very works that we walk in that are pleasing to God have been ordained to walk in as we are the recipients of grace. So there's no problem with the idea of works here. And Jesus looks down, he sees the works of, of the, the Thyatira and believers, and, and he says, I know your works. I, I know something about you. And I think this is the main point of what Jesus is saying to them, is that your, your, your life matches your words. We've heard of believers that they can talk a good line. We may even be that ourselves or have been that person. Oh, we can talk really good. What does our life show there's been a real change? There's a real fruitfulness in my life because of Christ and because of the Spirit of God in me. And one of the things that Jesus Christ says about this church is, I know your words. But he doesn't just speak in general terms. I want you to notice that he gets down into the nitty-gritty of the specifics and he highlights five things which provide the evidence of the general statement here in verse 19, I know your deeds, and Jesus takes them off one by one, puts them under a spotlight. And the very first thing he says about the church at Thyatira, he says, I know your love. Now that's fascinating to us because this is the very first work uh, or fruit of, of the Spirit of God, which is listed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The very first fruit that is to be indicative of a genuine Christian experience is that we love Jesus Christ says of himself, uh, himself about his disciples, I don't give you a new commandment. This is what I give you, that you love one another. The Apostle Paul spends an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, spelling out in, in very specific, and I would say even the most challenging terms, what it means to love. What's interesting is Jesus Christ looks at this church. He finds that they are a church that has a genuine love. A love which is planted in their heart and shed abroad in their heart by the Spirit of God. And, and it flows out into their life. 
Next, he says about them, I, I know your faith. It, it reminds us of the commendation of the people at Pergamum, remember? Where Jesus said to them, you haven't denied my faith. Well, well I think you could say that of, of this particular fruit here that he highlights. Faith. Faith is the gift of God. Faith, faith is that thing which is given to us by grace that we exercise and we look to Jesus Christ for, for eternal life. He says, you have that. But I think it means more than just that they have exercised faith unto salvation, but now they're showing the evidence of faith. They're being faithful in their life. They're showing themselves to be genuine. They've exercised faith. They live by faith. Next, he says of them, service. We might say service are the hands and feet of, of the gospel. This is what happens to believers who've been touched by the love of Jesus Christ, who have themselves been served by Christ. They serve others. We remember John chapter 13 as Jesus goes through this very elaborate, we might even say peculiar foot washing ritual. And Jesus says at the end of it, I've washed your feet because if I didn't, you wouldn't be a part of me. Now you're supposed to serve one another. They were people who were of great service. That's very commendable because if we remember this particular fruit in light of James 1.22, we realize how important it is because James exhorted the church to not be mere hearers of the word, but doers also. Servant-oriented. Love others. They serve others. We see another fruit here where we see perseverance. We all know what this word means. It, it, it means endurance. It comes from that Greek word, hupamine. And often it gets translated wrongly as patience. And we've made the distinction a thousand times if we've made it one. Patience is what I exercise towards people. And endurance is what I show in situations. Not the same thing. I am called to endure through affliction and trial and tribulation. I'm called to be patient towards others. Well, what Jesus says is he looks at this congregation that they are a people of hupomene. They endure. They're steadfast. They're full of resolution. They endure the trouble and the affliction of Jesus Christ. These are gritty Christians and they probably learned it by taking a lunch pail to work. Strong-minded and strong-willed in Jesus Christ. The final thing I note about this church here is progress. Uh, I don't recall another statement like this in Scripture. Verse 19, at the very end, he says, And your deeds of late are greater than at the first. I wish that was true of every one of us. This is not the best thing that could be ever said about you. You are a better Christian today than you were at the start. The works that you can look back to that you just were engaged in yesterday afternoon are better. You're making progress in Christ. This is a tremendous commendation. Think about all this. It's quite amazing. We're going to come back to this just more in a moment. In spite of this great commendation, Jesus has to say something really tough to the church. But we should just pause to note here the things that Christ finds commendable. Look at what Jesus Christ says is commendable. Works. A life which matches our profession. A life where it's so self-evident by how we live that it's clear we cling to the blood of Christ. That's what Jesus says. And what does he commend? He commends love and faith and service and endurance and progress. And he doesn't just say these things. Jesus, by stating them and putting them on record, is saying to the church for all time, this is what is commendable. If you want a commendable Christian life that Jesus Christ would look down and say to you, well done, here's your list. He's putting a seal of approbation upon this. He's saying this is what it is to be a believer and to be faithful. 
And it's included in the Word of God this morning for you and for us as a congregation. Remember, I said I'm preaching through this because the, what the world desperately needs today is for the church to be really the church. Somewhere along the line, we lost the calling of being the church. COVID exposed it. I was talking to somebody the other day. I said, what happened? He said, I think COVID just made everybody crazy. I said, no, it didn't. It just revealed what was there. This is generations of spiritual immaturity and weakness. And finally, Christ called the bluff. And so I said, we want to preach through this because we need to hear what Jesus wants us to be as the church so we can go out and let the light shine. Not because we're so great, but because this is what Christ called the church to and this is what is needed today. Genuine Christians. In the spirit of helping us become genuine questions, if you had to take this test this morning, in all honesty, what would Jesus Christ say? I know you are a congregation of love. I know you are a congregation of service. I know you are a congregation of endurance. I know you are a congregation of faithfulness. I know you are a congregation of progress. You know, that's what we should be asking because Jesus is saying, this is what you should be. And I got to thinking about that, and I said, you know what, if we're not, there's a solution for it. And the Word of God actually gives us the solution. It's the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter, or 2 Peter chapter 1. This is what he says. If you're unsure about whether you're making this progress, here's what he said to do. Applying all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence into moral excellence knowledge into knowledge self-control into self-control perseverance into perseverance godliness into godliness kindness into brotherly kindness love so that you won't be unfruitful. There's a remedy. The remedy is easy. Well, maybe not easy. I'll take that back. But the remedy is clear. If we're falling short of the self-assessment, the remedy is clear. Peter says it. Stand on your faith with the help of the Spirit of God and apply the spiritual elbow grease the Spirit provides and add. You see, if we don't, if we're not seeking to be the kind of people whose last works were better than our first, well, we're going to degenerate. And that's exactly what might have happened with some in the congregation. Because what Jesus says about them is awful. Look at verse 20. We come now to condemnation. We've seen the praise of, well, I'd say some in the church. Obviously, it's not for all, but some. And then he says in verse 20 now, by way of condemnation, I have this against you. This is what's scary about all these letters. This is Christ. Just brutal honesty. I have this against you. You tolerate this woman Jezebel, Carzel, prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So here comes now the, the condemnation. We need to think about the recipients. And first of all, who are the recipients? First of all, the recipients are the church. The recipients is, uh, are the church of, of, of Thyatira. And the thing that Jesus says, the bone I have to pick with you is that you're tolerant. And the evidence of the toleration is bound up in the phrase because you tolerate the woman Jezebel. And you know what the literal says there? It's not your translation. The woman of you. In other words, she's in your midst. She's a part of you. She is a member. She associates. You have been neighborly to Jezebel. You have tolerated 
Jezebel. Now, do you remember what I said at the outset? I told you something about Thyatira that you may not have known. It was a city known for its love and appreciation for prophecy, pagan prophecy. We said that woman, Sabaoth, uh, was, was well known there, had a shrine to her there. What it looks like to me is they have taken the culture and they've brought it right into the church. That's exactly what's happened here. They took the culture and they brought it straight into the church and they baptized it. Surely she spoke Christianese. Surely she did. Surely she did. Satan is, is wise. Remember, he's not stupid in every sense. He's, he's wise. The way you get falsehood and false doctrine in the churches is through people who can manipulate the language. But, but the reality is here, they brought the, the culture and the world into the church. And as I thought about that, I said, I cannot help but, but see a parallel here between Thyatira and our situation. Several decades ago, all the smart people in, in the church got together, I think, and said, hey, let's bring the church into the world. Uh, the, the world into the church and the culture into the church. And so we did it. And one of the things that turned out, um, I don't know by way of calculation or not, but guess what? The church grew. There were big, giant, bloated churches everywhere. And the way they got there was by bringing the world into the church. And it turns out that the world was attracted to the things in the world. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? The church was attracted by the world. And so when the church adapted the world, the world said, fine. Is there any evidence that the church got more godly, or Christ-like, or biblical, or more people saved? I don't know if there's any evidence of that. It just began to accommodate it. And what we got was a church that was weak. And I got blown away by a whisper. But that's what happens. It's the judgment of Christ upon the church when it refuses to be the church and incorporates the world into the church. It becomes a tolerant church. It turns out the thing that it doesn't tolerate is sound doctrine, true teaching, being biblical. Instead, what's important is being nice and having an awful lot of fun. But how did it happen? After all, I look at verse 19 and I just think of great commendation here. There's great commendation here in 19. And you ask, how in the world did this kind of accommodation take place in a church which seems so self-evidently full of spiritual vitality. And one of the warning signs I, I think that it gives to us, and it's a sobering one, is it's easy for us to be blind to our own sin. It is easy for us to be blind to our own sin. Especially when it looks like we're doing okay. The thing that we can never lose sight of, people of God, that helps us along the way is that great phrase of Martin Luther, huh? Simulusus et peccator. Simultaneously justified and sinful. That's the Christian. We are saved. We are in Christ. Every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours. And yet within me, I still have sin. You see, and sometimes we can use our progress in Christianity to make excuses for ourselves. Or sometimes we can say, well, I got saved anyway. I like sinning and Jesus likes forgiving and we got a good thing. But that's not Jesus' message to the church. He says, I have this against you. You're woke. You're tolerant. And it's defiance and rebellion against me. And it gets worse when you read about this woman Jezebel because you think about her name and you realize 
this is probably not a real name. After all, would you name your daughter Jezebel? <laughs> There's no instance of it in Greek. You can scan Greek literature of antiquity. You don't have this. Would a Jew name their daughter Jezebel? I think not. We all know who Jezebel is. That she was uh, a pagan queen of wicked King Ahab who led him to the worship of Baalism and led to the judgment of God upon him and his kingship in northern Israel. And so in the biblical record, Jezebel is forever associated with sexual immorality, seduction, and idolatry, not good qualities. You don't name your daughter Jezebel. So most people think here that this is a name that has been used by Christ to, to stereotype and identify who she is, but her character. Notice her claim here. She claims, you tolerate that woman who calls herself a prophetess. Jesus isn't saying anything about whether she is a prophetess. She's not. She is not receiving direct revelation from God. But yet she claims she is. She claims that she has got a lifeline directly to the throne of God. She's a liar. And the fact is that her lies are spelled out in her teaching. But she cloaks herself in the imagery of piety and godliness. We can only imagine how, how the piety must have just exuded through this lady. But it was a lie. And we know because of what she was doing. We're told that she was teaching. And some people say, oh, she must have been doing this in private. I'm not sure I buy it. But she's a deceiver. Look at this. She, she leads my bondservants astray. That means believers. When Jesus calls somebody a bondservant, it means they're a real Christian. And she led him astray. And she did it by her teaching. And this is what she taught them in verse 20. She taught them to commit acts of sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. You say, well, how did that happen? And the answer is that other piece of information I gave you about Thyatira, the trade union and the union hall, which had its own unique idol and its worship was bound up with eating meat sacrificed to idols and engaging and sexual immorality. You see, they needed a job. It only required a tiny couple of little things out of them. Eat meat sacrifice to idols and engage in sexual immorality as part of the worship. And you will be on the fast track to union form. You'll have a job. It just turns out that the council and the teaching of Jezebel worked out perfectly for them because if they didn't do it, they wouldn't have a job and they'd be in extreme poverty. And so the council worked for them. But what really made it diabolical wasn't just that it was pragmatic. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, but I say to you, the rest that are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching. This is the teaching of, of Jezebel to engage in gross immorality and idolatry. Who do not, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. Do you see what her teaching is, is summarized as but on her own account? It's called the depths of Satan. out there with it, huh? And so people have said, well, what in the world? How do you come into the church, claim to be a prophetess, hear directly from God, and tell people to engage in gross immorality, which is clearly forbidden in the word of God, call it the deep things of Satan, and get away with it? That's a really good question, isn't it? How would you have the brass to get away with that? And the best explanation is this. The deeps of Satan was basically this, that one way you get to 
conquer your sin is to sin. In other words, the way to triumph over Satan is to identify with Satan. To engage in gross immorality. To enter into the darkness. And the thought is that that leads a person to become morally superior because now they've tried it and they know what it is. They have looked Satan and sin and evil face to face and they came out on the other side to tell about it. Now that's a lie. I don't need to murder somebody in cold blood to know murder's bad. I have not triumphed over the sin of murder by killing somebody. It's self-evidently stupid, but remember, Satan is the father of lies. It's that simple. He is the father of lies. And Paul says he is the God of this age who blinds people. And that's just exactly the problem. It's so self-evidently stupid and wrong, but people were being led astray. I thought to myself, how does this work? I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of Bible and history, the Bible teaching. You know, I came across a passage that in my mind, uh, in the Rolodex up here, uh, that's what you used before the internet came out. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's Proverbs 6.27. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not get burned. Now that's pretty obvious, isn't it? If you grab a chunk of fire and you throw it on your shirt, you know what's going to happen. But moral deception doesn't necessarily work that way. And so the writer of the Proverbs, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses that turn of phrase to, to address young men about sexual immorality. Proverbs chapter 6 is pretty detailed and graphic about watch yourself, man. And um, he uses this self-evident turn of phrase, this piece of satire to cause you to lean forward and think, can I really light my pants on fire and not get burned? And the self-evident response to that in verse 29, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. You're not going to get spiritually stronger by looking Satan and sin and evil straight to the face and engage it and come out on the other side being a better believer. What you'll do is you scar and wound your soul. But you see here, this is what Jezebel was teaching. The depths of Satan. And they tolerated it. You can draw your own parallels to our day. You can do that. You can probably take a, a white sheet of paper and a paper or pencil and start writing things down. You're going to see a million parallels. There's lots of depths of Satan. So what does Jesus say? Well, he comes with a threat. By the way, let's not miss the way he identifies himself in verse 18. He says, The Son of God, who's got eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. The eyes of the flame of fire speaks of the holy penetrating gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees straight through the portal of the eyes into the depths of your soul where nothing is hidden from his sight. The feet that are like burnished bronze is an image of stomping something into the dirt till it's dead. It's a mean image. That's the one who's speaking. Now look what he says here. Look what he says here. Verse 22, he says this to Jezebel. Behold, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness. It's ironic, isn't it? 
that the one who is counseling the use of bed for sexual immorality is the one who will be thrown into a bed of affliction which will be her own death. Then to those who have been deceived and follow her, look at verse 22, those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. This is that big ugly word, clipsis. It means grinding misery. Grinding misery. The kind that makes your skin crawl misery. But you know what's even harsher than that? By the way, the word great is added to it just to make sure it's really, really bad. You know what's even worse? Look at verse 23. And I'll kill her children. Now, in the New American Standard, this got smoothed out with pestilence. But you know what it literally says in the original? I'm going to kill their children with death. Feels a little redundant. But that's what it says. And a lot of commentators turn bright red, red with blush. Oh, Jesus would never say this. We need to tone this down. You know. No. One commentator has it precisely correct when he says, Jesus assures them a third generation shall not begin in Thyatira. Christ is not tolerant of gross evil in the church. It's a sobering message. But just to reinforce it all, continue to read on in verse 23. And all the churches will know I am the one who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. You know what that word mind means? It's nephrus. And it means kidneys in Greek. You see, that's kind of weird. Why would Jesus search the kidneys? And the answer is because in antiquity it was thought to be the seat of emotion. Jesus says, I'm going to search you and see what you have affections for. Think of that. Think of how frightening that is. Christ says, I can see into the depths of your being and I can tell what you have affections for. If you don't repent of them... I'm going to make my name known. If you're not terrified by that, I don't know what's wrong with you. Even as a believer. See, Jesus takes it very seriously. There, there, there comes a time we must repent. We must repent. We must bring our sin straight before the throne of grace and repent and confess and say, I need this under the blood right now. I sat with a believer yesterday whose body was full of holes. I said, why is your body full of holes? you have staph infection? He said, no. I said, well, how'd you get all these holes? He said, I was addicted to heroin. And I've ruined my life. And my flesh is full of holes from where I constantly shot up. I don't know whether it's a believer or not. We talked very honestly and very forthrightly for a bit. I prayed with him. But you see, maybe it is. Christ said, I won't be mocked. You call yourself a believer. You don't turn from your sin. I'm going to let everybody know I am the Lord. I'm going to let you know I'm the Lord. I cannot let you live this way. I'm the one who searches the minds and the heart. I see what you have your affections for. And the very thing you have affections for just might be the thing that I use to make you know I am the Lord by bringing the greatest misery into your life so that you'll have to repent. This is real, and this is sobering, and this is what Christ says to the church. We ignored it our own peril. Because you can fool me all you like. This man was honest with me. He didn't have anywhere to go. He was on a hospital bed, so he's kind of a captive audience. People like that tend to like be prayed for too. And they like people to listen to. But it's happened. 
So Jesus does what we hope He will do in this situation. He calls to repentance. Look at verse 22. He says, Behold, I will throw her in a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her to tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And you know what Matthew Poole said here? And it just gave me the greatest joy to read. He said, Such is the patience of God that He gives the vilest sinners space to repent. That is the grace of the Gospel, isn't it? That Jesus reaches out His hand to you in the worst of your sin and He says, you can come unto Me. I, I can bear it. I'm the Son of God. I bear your flesh and I've died for you and you can bring your sin. It'll be washed clear. You see, the message of judgment gets now brought into perspective for us because the point of it all for Christ was to say to his church, I love you and I want you to repent. It reminds me of 2 Peter 3 9, where uh, the Lord says through Peter that the Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance I want you to notice here about verse 21 it says I gave her time to repent that's Jesus even talking about Jezebel I even gave her time to repent she didn't want some people get confused by that they say wow Jesus didn't really call her to repent he just gave her time to repent and I said what do you think she was listening to when she went to church on the Lord's day the reading of the law maybe the preaching of the word maybe just like you, every Lord's Day, you get to come here and you get to hear the, the law of God read. You get to hear the call to repent every single Lord's Day. You couldn't miss the call to repent. If you were going in the wrong way in your life, you couldn't miss it because every Lord's Day, here comes the call to you. Are you going to repent today? And then we repent together to show our solidarity in, in our sin and our our need for Jesus, even as believers. But that's God. Slow. He extends his hand and he says, Come unto me and repent, and I won't bring this against you. We need to hear that call of repentance as it comes from the authoritative voice of Jesus Christ, who identifies himself as the one whose eyes are blazing fire and feet are like burnished bronze which could crush you in his wrath if he wants our text ends in grace I don't have time to expound it there's two things that he says here that are very important for you to take home and chew on number one verses 26 and 27 he who overcomes that he is he who repents puts in his sin or the bloods the blood of Christ to him I'll give authority over the nations and he will rule with them as a rod of iron as vessels of potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. The long and the short of it is, and I think it's this, and I think it's, there's lots of different ways to interpret this, but I, I view it this. Christ says, you think of all the sin and injustice in the world, you think of all the sin and injustice in the culture, you think of all the sin and injustice in the church, you think of all the sin and the injustice that's happened to you, and what happens? You want to do something about it, Right? But you do not have enough minutes, or enough hours, or enough days, or enough weeks, or enough months, or enough years to right the wrongs, do you? It can never happen. But Jesus gives you this grace. Bottle it all up, hand it over to Jesus Christ, and when you die, you will reign with Him. And Christ promises to tread evil under His feet and to cause the gospel to flourish until he comes again. That will be what you get. The second thing, and it's, don't go in all the wrong ways you can take this. It's as simple as this. I give you the morning star. The morning star is Christ. By his own definition, Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, the bright morning star. Jesus promises to those who repent 
they have Christ in his fullness. As one commentator beautifully put it, he says, they will receive the morning star that is the abiding, close, imminent, eternal fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They will receive Christ in the fullness of his grace. If that's what you do, you, you humble yourself and you pray and you confess and you repent and you cling to the blood of Jesus is what you get. Christ in his fullness. If you're an unbeliever, that promises to you this morning. If you're a believer, that promises to you this morning. So what do we do? We run to Christ with all of our sins. We receive Christ in his fullness and his grace. And then we take up our calling, which is what? Reject being tolerant. Jesus imposes a duty upon us this morning as the church needs to be intolerant. Intolerant of everything that is contrary to Christ and his truth and the word of God. And to help us do that, he shows us what tolerance is. And I mean tolerance defined as accepting of things that are contrary to Christ and his truth and the law of God. And he puts a face on it. And he says the face of tolerance is this. Satan's debts. Tolerance of what Christ hates and what the law of God forbids is not being neighborly. It's Satan's debts. You arm yourself with that perspective and by the grace and help of God Almighty will become intolerant towards that which is evil. And in so doing, we will be able to hold up the, the clear, bright, shining lamp of the gospel of Jesus Christ and show sinners the way to eternal life. It's not through accommodating what's evil. It's through upholding the beauty and the glory of the grace of Christ. Father, we thank you.